a visit with Dr. Alan Williams on soil health. He is from the agricultural world and is a consultant and understands regenerative agriculture and building soil like no other. Really happy to dive into him and teach us more about the regenerative agriculture. And we happen to hit on an unknown, to me at least, epidemic with mental health in the agricultural world. Welcome to the Sowing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. We are here with Dr. Alan Williams, world-renowned regenerative agriculture expert. Thank you so much for joining us and helping uh, share some of the knowledge that you have. Very good to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. So we we are in Arkansas, Central Arkansas, and we shoot a lot of videos and work with farmers. And uh, one of our missions is to, honestly, it's to create a blue zone in Arkansas. So that's uh, just an area around the world where people live to 100 of a high quality life. So that that's, if we can do it in one of the most unhealthy states in America, we can do it anywhere. So in researching all this, my little boy was diagnosed with cancer in 2019. So stage four kidney cancer. And so we had our lives turned upside down, right? And so in researching, what do we do? How do I help him and things like that? It's rabbit, rabbit trail, rabbit trail to farming. It is so unbelievably important. So we feel like the, the way to make people healthier also solves a whole lot of problems with soil. So can you break down just the basic fundamental difference between conventional farming and regenerative agriculture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in conventional farming, we rely very heavily on a lot of tools, technologies, and inputs, chemical inputs, synthetic inputs, things like that, that frankly, can be highly destructive uh, and, and not just destructive to the soil, but destructive to our environment, to our ecosystems, and also destructive to our health uh, because we are significantly impacting nutrient density in the foods that we are consuming. Uh, however, with regenerative agriculture, what we're really doing is we're working with nature rather than against nature. And pretty much every other type of agriculture that we try to do, we find ourselves always fighting against nature. And, and I and believe it or not, I actually hear farmers all the time talking about um, fighting against nature and as if they're proud of it, you know, uh, and, and somehow I'm gonna beat nature. But, you know, I have a quote that I, that I use quite often that, uh, and it goes like this, nature will humble you. And if you refuse to be humbled, nature will beat you. Yes. Uh, so, so with regenerative agriculture, what we're doing again is we're, we're trying to implement 
agricultural practices and systems that allow us to work with nature and to be able to repair, restore, rebuild, and revitalize the four ecosystem processes. And that is the energy cycle, sunlight, photosynthesis, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, and what we call community dynamics, or in essence, the diversity out here in the biological community in these ecosystems. And to do that within regenerative agriculture, we use two primary things. We use the six principles of soil health and what we call the three rules of adaptive stewardship. And so with, with that, when you're talking about these rules and stuff, you have a, a company, a consulting business with some amazing, amazing people, but you teach these principles, right? So you go out to a, a farm that's been practicing it across the, the world, I guess. So it is definitely across the United States and teach classes in which you can have other farmers come in. What is the most eye-opening thing a lot of farmers see out of the gate? The most eye-opening thing, quite frankly, is the fact that they can act, actually implement regenerative practices and not lose money in the early years because most of them think that this is more like the transition to certified organic. Yeah. When the first three to five years, they're going to experience some kind of significant revenue loss. Uh, but with regenerative agriculture, that's just simply not the case. If, if you do this properly from year one, you can actually anticipate input cost reduction and in revenue increases even even in year one. So so that's probably the most eye-opening thing. And and I would say the second most eye-opening thing is the fact that they are entering into discovery. And in, in that discovery, what they're figuring out is that every day is a new day they're seeing more and more life exploding on their farms. And anybody that's a farmer and rancher, that's pretty important to them. That's a, that's a really interesting, um, you know, side effect in a positive way of applying the regenerative practice. So we were recently out at one of my friends, uh, the Ralston's farm, and they have a rice operation in which they have their own meal. And they are implementing so many different practices uh, they don't they don't have necessarily the livestock running over the, where the rice fields were but they're using a lot of surface runoff they're doing the the no-till and the, no they're not baling the straw so doing different things so when we were out there we saw you know beavers in the irrigation ditches healthy uh, uh, bald eagles all kinds of birds and so it's really cool to see they're working with nature um, and so back to your point, it's, we don't, we're not supposed to be fighting nature in the, you know, chemists, I guess, approach. It's more of a bio, biology approach that we can be profitable, give back to nature, create habitat, and just win on every level. Yeah, and that's a very good point because 
what has happened in, and I spent 15 years in academia as a research scientist and, uh, and clearly what I saw during that time period was that in spite of us coming up with all of these new technologies and new products and, and new methodologies, we were steadily seeing not only an erosion in farm net profit, net revenue, but we were also seeing a steady erosion in our soil health and our ecosystem health and our animal health and in just the, the overall populations of beneficial insects, birds, things like that. And so the bottom line really is what we're doing is we truly are restoring life and there's nothing more gratifying. You know, that, that's why when we talk about the three rules, we call those the rules of adaptive stewardship. And we take that word stewardship quite seriously. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's really very uh, heartening and, and heartwarming, you know, that, that we can begin to restore things much closer to their original state. Uh, and instead of seeing the degradation around us. And, you know, for the last 80 years in our agricultural science, what we have done is we have assumed that the soil is all about chemistry and we have completely ignored the biology. And that's now what through regenerative agriculture, we are rediscovering that the biology is really the driver. So for the past eight decades, we've acted as if chemistry drives biology, but it's actually the other way around. Biology drives chemistry. And when we get that right, everything starts to function a whole lot better. It's, it's really remarkable to me, the principles that are underlying life are across the board. So for for what we've done, I recently did an interview with Wade T. Lightheart, who is a Canadian bodybuilder. He owns a bio-optimizer. He's fantastic. And he broke down exactly what you said. Post-World War II, we started using chemical uh, fertilizers and, uh, and everything, and it just kind of went to pot after that. The soil microbiome and the gut microbiome are so unbelievably similar in every way. It's just, we need a healthy soil microbiome. We need a good gut microbiome and a lot of the same approaches. So the pesticides, the herbicides, the glycophosphates, you name it, it's the same thing. So we can really make a major impact on health of, of humans and livestock by applying these principles. That, that's absolutely correct. We, uh, and, and we teach that in our soil health academies, that the microbiome is the microbiome. And what we mean by that is that the microbiome in the soil should be strikingly, strikingly similar to the microbiome in plants, in animals, in our livestock, and in us. And it's only when we alter that microbiome, and it is different between our gut and the soil or the gut of our livestock in the soil that we then start to have problems. And those problems become compounding and cascading 
in effect, and very negatively so. So you, you are absolutely correct. We've got to restore this original microbiome that has those incredible similarities between all living organisms. I love it. I love it. it's it's something that we can attack and and do to have make a major major improvement. So something else that uh, we've come across, and I'd like for you to elaborate on, is that it seems that we are dealing with more droughts and more floods going on. Why is it that you believe soil is the solution to both of those? You know that that's a very good question and. You know, just keeping in mind that we have worked throughout all of North America and and, and with many other countries in the world. So today we've worked with uh, 54 countries and counting and in every conceivable environment that you can think about. So everywhere from cold northern climates to hot, humid climates like what I live in down here in the deep south uh, to very arid desert climates. And what we have found very clearly is that because of our poor agricultural practices and keeping soil exposed for so long out of the year, we have totally changed the dynamics of our climate because soil temperature has a ton to do with this. So it's, it's not just the release of carbon and other greenhouse gases from the soil. Yes, that that plays a major role in, in bare soil and constant tillage of that soil or frequent tillage certainly continuously releases those into the atmosphere. But it's also the temperature and the moisture holding capacity of the soil that is greatly contributing to our climate abnormalities and extremes. And for instance, Right here where I am in, in, in Alabama, I'm at our farm here at BDA Farm in Alabama today, and we have had in the month of March, so we're at the last day of March, and, and we have had a little better than 20 inches of rain in a single month, mm -hmm. and we had another deluge of rain today, and, and I, I drove into town, and driving back, I was very <laughs> disheartened because there was water running everywhere. And this water, unfortunately, was not clear. Yeah, it was very muddy. So all of these plowed fields that we have around here right now, with this 20 plus inches of rain, you know, they're losing nutrients, they're losing sediment, they're losing topsoil. So this is significantly damaging the ability of our client to function properly. And that is directly leading to more volatility in our weather, more severity in our weather, and obviously more flooding and more droughts. The, one of the things that we've noted very definitively, uh, for instance, down in the Chihuahuan Desert in Mexico at the Los Damas Ranch, one of, one of the ranches that we've worked very heavily with in, in restoring regenerative practices, we have now found, and that ranch is about 30,000 acres. We have found that on just a 30,000 acre landscape, just by regreening that landscape through regenerative practices in the desert, 
we have created a microclimate on that ranch. And that ranch is now getting precipitation that the neighboring ranches do not get. And, and we have the radar evidence for year after year to back that up, as, as well as the precip actual precipitation evidence. So we now know for a fact that if we implement the right practices, we can very favorably alter our climate and our environment. That's really cool. So, so the solution for both extremes, it, it goes back to the soil. So the analogy, and correct me if I'm wrong, the analogy I try to explain is that we want our soil to be very similar to like a kitchen sponge. We want it to be able to soak up the water to as much as possible and then it will dissipate. We don't want it to be like a plate where it hits and then runs off, right? Yes. So, and what that able, enables is for there not to be as extreme of flash floods, for one, it doesn't get rid of a lot of the nutrients or organic material quickly. So it just all in all, the keeping the ground covered is a big deal, isn't it? And keeping those it's, living roots. It is a huge deal. Why you know, do we, why do, why is it hard to get or why, why is that hard for, to embrace? You know, that's a very good question. And, you know, we get asked the question all the time. Well, if regenerative agriculture is so great, why isn't everybody doing it? And, and actually, you know, oftentimes I like to say, well, there's never a dumb question, but I'm going to make the exception now and say, that's actually a dumb question. Okay, because no matter how good something is, not everybody does it, right? Uh, you know, so, so if, if uh, drinking to excess is bad for you, but we still have people that do it, right? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, drugs to excess is bad for you, but we still have people that do it. So 100% are never going to adopt anything. That, that's just people yeah. and life. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that you cannot implement what you do not know. And the vast majority of farmers and ranchers out there still today do not understand regenerative agriculture. They do not understand those six principles and those three rules of adaptive stewardship that, that I talked about earlier. And so education is the very first step to helping them begin to understand how to implement the principles and rules on their farms. And so I've, I've list, I've watched the amazing, uh, you know, many documentaries that you've done with the carbon cowboy and, uh, the, the Mark Hyman, uh, podcast is something I think everybody should go out and listen to. I think that was just phenomenal. I've listened to it at least seven times, but I, after listening to your stuff, one of the biggest things that I go back to is I'm from a rural community, small town, it's like 2000 people. And I, I can just remember everybody had cattle. Okay. The cattle were on the same pasture. 100% of the time they would have summer where they, they ate the grass winter. They're su they supplemented all year and they put in hay. And, and I can, I can hear some of these older farmers saying, but it's wasted pasture. If I don't have something on it, it's wasted. So what, what is your way of, a, of, of addressing that? So 
number one, you're exactly right. Unfortunately, that's the way that the majority of grazers graze, and not just here in the U.S., but globally. And just like the majority of farmers in the U.S. and globally uh, do excess tillage and apply too many synthetics and chemicals. Um, the, the way that we do it, though, we call it biomimicry and ecomimicry. So we use a method, grazing methodology that we developed called adaptive grazing. The vast majority of grazers basically follow a prescriptive or, or formulaic type of grazing where they do the same thing all the time, day in and day out, year in and year out. And that just simply does not work. It's, it is going to degrade the soil and the ecosystem, no doubt about it. But with adaptive grazing, what we're doing is we're trying to mimic what the wild ruminants, you know, the vast herds of wild ruminants that once existed and roamed the face of this earth. And in North America, that would have been the bison, the elk, the antelope and all of that. And so we mimic their patterns, the way they moved across the landscape. They never stayed. They weren't fenced in somewhere. Not at all. They were moving every single day. And so that's what we do too. We move every day. You know, so we, we use temporary fencing technology or herding. And both work very well, depending on the size and ruggedness of the landscape. And we literally move our livestock to a fresh bite of grass every single day. Now, just that one simple thing. Now, there's more to it than that. But if that's all you did, if you just simply move them to a fresh paddock every single day, we are immediately growing a lot more grass. We're immediately creating a lot more soil biology and diversity in the plant species and beneficial insects and birds and so forth. And we are immediately restoring water infiltration rates, soil aggregation, and all of these other things that are so vital to a healthy soil. So by growing grass, what we see, you're also growing roots that are adding more organic material and doing a lot more things that you could get, you know, dive into uh, with biology. So it's, it's both ways. It's up and down. It, it's more feed, it's more biodiversity, it's, but it's also adding bulk and those roots die, they add organic material, and now we create that sponge, a better sponge. Okay. So when you're saying that, I, I go back to like the Discovery Channel when they're over in Africa and the uh, millions of uh, wildebeest are out just roaming. They're, they're just moving over a huge, huge area and they may not see that ground again for months, if not a year, right? That, that's correct. And what we have found is that every grassland needs rest. Yeah, and when we don't allow that rest, then we are gonna have degradation in the soil, in the plant species diversity, and in all of the other diversity that exists there. So those rest periods are critical. And just simply by grouping your animals up and moving them, as I described earlier, day by day across that landscape, you totally change the dynamics. Everything changes for the better. And the, the biggest drawback we hear initially before anybody actually does this, oh my gosh, that's going to take way too much time. I can't, I can't move my cows every day. I can't move my sheep every day. 
you know, or I can't move my chickens every day. But the truth is, absolutely, yes, you can. And it takes far less time than you think. And what you're really doing is you're exchanging labor for labor. Because if I don't move them every day, I've got to spend a lot of time in the summertime cutting, raking, baling, and putting up hay to feed them through the winter. And then I've got to spend a lot of time in the winter feeding all of that hay back, as well as buying other expensive feed supplements to maintain them during the winter. So all you're really doing is just exchanging labor for labor. And yet just through that one-to-one -one exchange, we're getting significantly more positive benefits and results. That's awesome. And it also uh, breaking a lot of the fly cycles and you have healthier animals and you're less in vet bills and, and supplements and stuff. All right. I want to take us a little bit different direction because I think it's extremely important. Uh, I, I own a farmer's market, so I work directly with lots and lots of farmers. And something that has just came to my attention is, is kind of twofold. One, a lot of them aren't making money. And so we've got to figure out what we can do. And so from the retail side, I'm trying to spend a lot of time on that and how we help and have more of an outlet and more people appreciating local products or higher quality. The other thing is I didn't realize how depression and suicide is running rampant for a lot of farmers. I had no idea. What, what can we do now and long-term to help with that. You know, that, that is exactly correct. And, and that's exactly what we have found that, um, you know, farmer depression and farmer suicide rates, both here in the U.S. and many other countries around the world have exploded. And that has created, you know, just a significant problem with families, quality of life, everything else that we're now dealing with. And a lot of that is due to the fact that as I mentioned earlier, farm profits have eroded dramatically. Uh, and, and so what we find with regenerative agriculture, and, and this is one of the things that make what we do on a daily basis so really good, uh, is that we see lives restored, not just soil restored and land restored and ecosystems restored, but we see lives restored, families restored, because when they, when they start into regenerative agriculture, this helps them break the debt cycle that they're under, the crushing load of debt that many of these farm families have been enduring. So they're, they're able to break the debt cycle, get out from under their debt, and they're able to start enjoying a much higher quality of life. And the, the thing that they, they tell us over and over again is that, you know, this has been the most freeing experience of my life. And uh, I'll just, I can give you many examples. I, I'm going to give you one. Uh, but uh, Adam Grady, who farms in uh, eastern North Carolina near Kenansville, he's a 10th generation farmer. So the land's been in their family since the 1780s. They were here, you know, over the last decade or so, they've been really struggling. And, and it was getting tougher and tougher for them. And, you know, and when you think about that heritage since the 1780s, 10th generation, and Adam sitting here thinking, oh, my gosh, am I going to be the generation to lose the farm? Yeah. You know, so enormous pressure 
on him. And he was introduced to regenerative agriculture in the fall of 2016. They started implementing it that fall. And by 2018, on 1,200 acres, Adam, so just his second year in, Adam had saved $200,000 in input cost, $200,000. By the end of the third year, Adam called me up the week after Thanksgiving and said, Alan, I'm just returning from my bank. I just met with my lender and I just paid off all my loans. He said, I'm debt free. And, and he said, oh, by the way, I just bought another farm paying all cash for it. Love and it. in 2020, Adam acquired yet another farm. Yeah, uh, So just, you know. That's awesome. When, when you hear that in, in the people that we've been able to be a part of their lives and they have achieved that because of what we've been able to teach them, you know, it, it's just, it's very uplifting and it keeps us doing what we're doing. I love it. I love it. So anything that uh, is, is going to help as many problems as for the solutions, I can get behind. So I think this is a big deal. I want to be able to help bring the knowledge y'all have to Arkansas. So we we'll definitely want to stay in contact with y'all and see where when we can do an event here and have you speak and just share your wisdom and practices because I think it's a big, big deal. And uh, is there a preferred means that you want people to come find out more about you, uh, website or email, Facebook? Where, where do people need to come find you? Absolutely. So uh, there's, there, there's three websites that, that they can visit us at. Uh, they can visit us at understandingag.com. Okay. They can visit us at the soilhealthacademy.org and at bdafarm.com. And so we welcome anybody to visit there. And if they want to contact me directly, they can do so by emailing me at alan, A-L-L-E-N, at understandingag.com. Alan, thank you so much for the time. And uh, what you're doing is making a huge difference for our our country and, and everybody that applies it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You are very welcome, and it's been, a, it's been an honor to be able to be on with you today. Thank you, Alan. Have a good day, brother, and uh, I will be in contact.